0: Hey, this is Nick here, host of the Commonwealth. Today's episode is sponsored by Potentiate. Potentiate is a boutique financial services firm for early-stage startups and expanding companies. I love making the show, but there's a lot to handle behind the scenes. Now that we're starting to generate revenue, managing financials is one more headache. If you're looking for complete coverage of financial tasks and strategies while growing your business head on over to Potentiate.com and give them your email. That's P-O-T-E-N-T-E-8.com or click the link in our show notes. Now, on to the episode. The world is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. From business to art to sports, these changes are affecting every aspect of our lives. My name is Nick Kastner, And we're setting out to talk with the people who are altering the way things are done. Along with Alec McChesney, this is The Commonwealth. My guest today is Mark Haysbrook, founder of Dundee Venture Capital, which was, one of, which was the first venture capital fund in Nebraska. And Mark's also had a long entrepreneurial journey, so I'm excited, I'm excited to sit down and chat with you today, Mark. Great
1: to be here. Thanks yeah. for
0: having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining me. So what was your first experience with entrepreneurship?
1: Boy, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life, but one of the most memorable ones, I guess, was early in college when... Uh, my roommate and I wanted to go to Padre Island <laughs> for spring break. And neither of us had any money. Okay, of course. course. <laughs> and uh, we were at the University of Nebraska uh, in Lincoln and at our fraternity, the Sigma Chi Fraternity. Okay, uh, He came from Gordon, Nebraska, which is uh, western Nebraska. Um, these guys make out there lots of different moccasins. There's a Native American reservation there that... He came back one time from Fall Break and he had these colorful moccasins on. I said, "God, those are really cool." You know, my guess is uh, people around campus might want to buy these. And so we went around door to door to sororities and sold moccasins. And <laughs> um, it was a great way to meet girls, first of all. I can believe that. Yeah, <laughs> super one-on-one <laughs> yeah. and they're like, "Hey, I'm normally not a nine, you know." Yeah. I mean, that's what the thing says here. You know, I measured your front. But uh, anyway, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so, so we actually sold quite a few pairs of moccasins. It was a blast. We made enough money to go on our spring break trip. Mm-hmm. We get back from Padre Island, and uh, there's girls outside our fraternity. And we pull in the driveway, and they're pointing at us. And I turned over. <laughs> My roommate, and I'm like, we're going to be rich. This is the best thing ever. Yeah. And it turns out that the dye from the moccasins had leaked onto their feet. You're not supposed to get them wet. <laughs> and God, were these girls really upset. <sighs> and, and not did they not want any more moccasins? They wanted their money back.
0: Of course. And
1: which, of course, we had spent. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I learned a valuable lesson in supply chain and in knowing who your supplier is with that <laughs> yeah. because we, we had to either uh, refund the money or we actually got them natural leather ones that didn't stain their feet Okay, and just did an exchange with the folks out there. And I called the supplier. I'm like, God, these girls' feet are just dyed all different colors. And he goes, you know, they're not supposed to get wet. They're just house slippers. You wear them inside. <laughs> well. Of course I didn't know that anyway, it's a big fail
0: <laughs> yes yeah um, what was your degree in in college what uh, a business for? degree okay uh, yeah and and then once graduating you what what was your first job
1: well I decided um, to me through the, the business program I, I realized that Nebraska at the time had a real focus on finance so everything was you know, kind of finance related all the accounting classes economics classes and so forth Uh, And so the the bend was really teaching you about finance and getting a finance job. So it was kind Mm -hmm. of baked into my head. And I thought, well, God, I better learn this. But what about finance? And I realized I just didn't know how money moved through America. Mm -hmm. Like when I take money to a bank, what does the bank do with it? And how does it move through this weird building? And then how do they make money? And I learned about this management training program at First National Bank in Omaha Mm -hmm. Uh, and got accepted to, to that and realized that that was something that was really super valuable to me because I learned from when the, the trucks of cash come in, what they do with that, how it processes through the bank, how they make loans, how they make car loans and business loans and you name it. And then, um, how they loan the money out and how they get it back. And then how do they price that stuff? So it was kind of really interesting. And after about 18 months uh, in that program, I got placed into the uh, commercial lending group. And that's where you make loans to small businesses. But before you get to do that, you do your time at the Russian front, so to speak, in Mm -hmm. making uh, spreadsheets, analyzing companies for about six months. This was before computers. I mean, we had no computers, so it was all manual calculations on these ginormous spreadsheets that were as long as your arm span.
0: So a spreadsheet was actually a piece of paper? A piece of paper. I, I, I don't correlate the word spreadsheet with paper. There were, there were spreadsheets <laughs> back
1: in the day, and mine had... If You don't even know what whiteout is, but whiteout is something when you screw up, which I did all the time, you had to cover it up with whiteout and start over again because all of the previous columns that you were working on relied on each other. Wow. Uh, and what I didn't realize was I was building up a muscle, if you will, of the ability to just look at these financial statements and, and really decipher them pretty quickly, what it meant, good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, good trends, bad trends, uh, and then opportunities for the future, how can they be better and stuff like that. And then, um, so I would make recommendations to the loan officers and just say, here's how stuff works and here's my recommendation, and here's the analysis and the ratios and all of that. And then I became a loan officer and started doing my own lending. And I realized uh, when I was doing that, I enjoyed, really enjoyed the building side of that, building of the business, the Mm -hmm. creation of the business. So today it's really difficult for someone to go into a bank and say, I'm starting a business and I want to borrow $100,000. Unless you have the collateral... Of two times that amount of money, most banks won't look at it. It's just too big of a risk for them. But back when we were doing this, you had to kind of analyze it much like you do a venture deal. You know, can these people repay it? What's going to be the source? You know, how do you help them grow their business? You were kind of their partner, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that. But uh, I realized that the pace of commercial lending is super slow. Yes. And they're very conservative, very regulated business. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, learned a lot in just how to lend money to small businesses, and along the way, came across this little company that was starting to, to franchise, and their name is Vix Corn Popper. Mm-hmm. That's a natural transition, isn't it? Yes. Banking yeah. To popcorn. <laughs> to popcorn. Um, but I think really uh, the entrepreneurial. Spirit that I had was was always there I Realized, okay now. I've learned a little bit about the, the flow of money in and out of the system Maybe it's time for me relatively young age to do something myself And so I just decided to to be a franchisee. Yes yeah. How old were you when? 23 uh,
0: three, 24 okay, 10. and um, how how did you land on Vicks of all the different franchise?
1: Well, they were kind of hot at the time because they had this cool boutique little shop. So in the front, say, third of the store was a little boutique where you could come in and you got basically three kinds of popcorn, caramel cheese and white, and you could make canisters or just get an order to go. Um, But it also had this, this kind of camaraderie with the customers that you got to know. And in the back, you made all the popcorn. And so there wasn't a central producing place. At each store kind of had this little machine, and you Hmm. made all the stuff there. And so we opened one store to start with just to see how it would do. And uh, it was actually up in Blair. It was the first store. Okay. And it it did quite well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the smells, and, and people kind of came and hung out and got popcorn. And it was sort of... It was like, you know, a different variation of a Starbucks, if you will, mm-hmm. because it was a third place for, for someone besides home.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so then we opened another one in, uh, in Millard, and then uh, over the course of about a year, did five stores around Omaha. Uh, and things were going great until a competitor came into town and, and kind of said, why are people going to these little stores and buying this gourmet, ready-to-eat product? And it really was premium price stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it was heavy, heavily laden with butter and cheese, and, and of course you know, the brown sugar and the. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was you know, but very good quality product. Um, and so they went to grocery stores, okay, competitor, and it just was a slap in the face. We were like, God, wake up! This makes perfect sense. Uh, we went to a handful of grocers and said, if we started to to sell this in your store, would you carry it? And I learned a valuable lesson then in in just how to sell, which I didn't know really how to do. And grocers are different animals. Uh, None of them really have an office where you you and I can sit here Mm -hmm. and just shoot the breeze. They all walk around the store. And so the snack guy and the, the produce person and the dairy person are all wandering. You have to find them. You have to find a time that they can sit there and look at your product, look at the packaging and understand the pricing and then make a determination if they even want to carry the product on a sample basis. And yeah. It was tough. The first uh, half dozen of them, I got thrown out. Not thrown out, but just oh, like, hey, man, do yeah. Well, one guy, I mean, he walked up. He goes, OK, look at my snack food aisle. And I, did, I What do you see? I say, I see a lot of Frito-Lay. And he goes, there's a reason for that. <laughs> People <laughs> like the product. And it's easy. They're here all the time. I know my margins. There's no screw-ups. Why on earth would I carry this little gourmet product that is way overpriced? Mm -hmm. I said, just how about if I come in on a Saturday and sample it? Wish I never would have said that. But nevertheless, set up a little table. (laughs) And I was the guy that's kind of the annoying person like Costco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a you know, total loser, just handing stuff out. <laughs> and people coming by saying, God, this is great. How much is this? Well, you know, a bag is $1.99 and this large one is five ninety-nine. Oh, God, uh-huh. to pop popping it into their grocery carts. And so uh, the guy at No Frills took a chance on us. And he just said, okay, this is not our typical customer. We're going to give it a try. And it's funny, I think, I don't know if it's still the case today, but most grocers, if somebody starts to carry something, it's sort of like, well, why are they carrying it? We aren't. And I got a call from Albertsons and then Hy-Vee huh. and then Baker's at the time and... And all of them saying, hey, uh, I saw this over at No Frills, and what's the story on that? So it started to steamroll, and so that's that's how we got into, say, more of the wholesale side of things.
0: Okay. Yeah. And did you keep that physical footprint?
1: We did. We, uh, we actually then had to build a manufacturing facility because we just couldn't keep up with the demand. And so we started to build. We built one here in Omaha um, because we had to first handle the stores around here, and then Albertsons uh, out of Boise just said, "This is selling really well. Why don't we start going regionally?" Can you guys handle it? And of course, yeah, we can handle it. And then you start yeah. doing the math on shipping a truckload of popcorn. <laughs> yeah. you, oh my God, we're, not, we're shipping air. Yeah, you know, it's just impossible. Yeah. But we we had to then build this facility to bring our costs down, uh, keep the quality, and then we started shipping to regional warehouses. Uh, and then schnooks in Chicago, and a lot of the, the bigger brands in Minneapolis started to carry it. Um, and so it was, you know, outpacing the retail by hmm. by far. Yeah. And we were a wholesaler. And then a third leg of the stool was the gift canisters, you know, that, that we started to just really sell those all over the place, hmm. and particularly at the holidays. And
0: was uh, was Vicks the franchisor? Were, were were they cool with you? Yeah, you doing this?
1: Yeah. yeah, because they started to see the the brick and mortar piece of it starting to decline, hmm. and so it was difficult to get around all of the different franchise logistics because you know you had somebody who had one store in Littleton, Colorado, and they go into their local grocery store and they're like, "What is this doing here?" Yeah. You know, so we had to figure out a way that everybody would share in that. And a company here in Omaha approached us, uh, Schuler Grain, and they ended up buying it, uh, Vix, for that okay. reason because they had they had a vision of this being a nationwide brand. Mm-hmm.
0: Did they buy uh, your piece of the franchise, yeah. or okay? Yeah, no, they bought the
1: whole company, the whole but company, But ours as well. The okay, whole, the wholesale piece, yeah. Okay, makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so then after. Um, after the VIX, um, so I I guess before before we move away from VIX, what was that first acquisition like?
1: Um, it was it was good. I didn't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. frankly. How so? Um, because you had a, a really polished, professionally run company uh, show interest in your baby, and you kind of go, "Well, this is this is big time. This is exciting," you mm-hmm. know. And you sort of get lost in. The process, I think, and that the emotion begins to take over the the just the fundamentals of the economics, and you realize, man, I'm going to give this away. It's going to be gone pretty soon. Now, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a there's a saying in in lots of M and A that you know, there's price and then there's terms. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the valuable lesson here was like, well, here's the price. And, and you're sort of ecstatic, like, God, it's a big number. Yeah. Well, now here's the terms of when we're going to pay that price, you know, and the contingencies related to that price and all this stuff. They were wonderful partners. They were really solid people. Um, can't say enough about them, but it was just two different cultures. We were kind of shoot from the hip, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of on the fly sort of folks. And they had processes and they had systems and... And I worked for them for, I don't know, about six weeks. And I just realized I'm adding zero value here. Yeah. I got to find something else to do. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then what, what, uh, what did you end up doing next?
1: So I uh, was reading of all things, the Midlands business journal. Okay. And I read an article about Mike McCarthy and a guy starting this thing called McCarthy Dunn and company. And they were going to help uh, businesses either raise capital sell their business and then manage their money. Once they've done that, I thought that that is really an old school kind of investment banking approach to the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And you look around at that time, nobody was doing it really. There was a company before them called Child's Hider that had done some of that, but it was, it was a big void. And, uh, you know, what was the time period? Uh, this would have been probably 86 or seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, uh, so I saw this article and it just really appealed to me because it sort of combines, uh, entrepreneurship with building and creating businesses, uh, learning the M&A side of things. Like, how do you sell these companies? I've just been through this. I'm not sure I did anything right. <laughs> maybe I can learn this as well. And and then, you know, combine those two skills. It would be maybe something interesting. And I I went over to uh, to, to meet Mike, and I'll never forget. I, I walk in. Uh, I didn't have an appointment and just said I just wanted to meet him. Hmm. Um he comes out super gracious. He's like, look, we just started. We're not hiring anybody. And I said, well, let me let me just show you what I can do. I mean, give me something to work on and I'll do it for free. Just, you know, let me show you that I at least have some knowledge. And, mm-hmm. and so he's like, all right, here. And he hands me this thing. He said, just let me know when you're done. And uh, it was a particular company that they were looking at raising some capital for and uh, so, what's it worth, and where do you find the money, and you know what could it be worth someday, and all of these things, and who's the competitors, and and you know uh, how would you structure something like this? So. No clue what I was doing,
0: and and he handed you that yeah. when you first walked in.
1: It was about the sixth time I walked. Okay. in. Yeah. Okay, persistence because yeah. he just said, "Yeah, well, thanks. We'll stay in touch." And then I just kept coming back, okay. and uh, and finally he just goes, "Here, just, yeah. just, we'll see what happens." Okay, and so I did that, and he said, "Okay, yeah, maybe this is is worth a worth a chance." You know, I think this is fairly good work. He would tell you today. Uh, that I was still overpaid for that work, by the way. <laughs>
0: uh, um, so, but it was great, so he just yeah. said,
1: "All right, let's let's give it a try." Specifically on the MA side of things, we just really need to shore that up. And and what that basically means is that's it's fee based work. You know, so somebody comes to you and just says, "Here's my business. Um, I'm thinking I might want to sell it. I don't know what it's worth. Could you help me find a universe of buyers?" For this. I think I know a couple of them, but there could be 25 others out there. Okay. Uh, so we get hired to value the business, uh, find the buyers, negotiate the deal, close the deal. Okay. Yeah. Was
0: it tough to switch from entrepreneurship back into the investing and finance realm?
1: Not really, because what we were doing was creating something new. We were actually building this MA business. And so th- that was, you know, square one of starting this particular business. And then the micro level of that was helping some companies who would come into us and say, look, we're, I've got two employees and we're growing, we need to raise some money. How do I do that? And I thought that's that's kind of both worlds between entrepreneurship and banking mm-hmm. and yet it's practically applied and it's real time. And so and it moves quickly. Yeah. And that really appealed to me. So
0: being in that cross-section of everything you just explained, what um, what did you learn learn about business?
1: Well, um, I think the most valuable thing that I, I learned from working there, and I was there about 12, 13 years, um, was that you treat everybody the same. And, you know, you, you have basically a couple of things, and we carry this on today at Dundee Venture Capital, is that... You know, you have cash and you have your reputation, and, mm-hmm. and that's really all you have. And you can't afford to lose either one, you know, because at the end of the day, how you treat people is how you expect to be treated. Mm-hmm. And and so what I really learned, especially from from working with Mike, is that, you know, integrity is, is critical. Now, that goes to any industry and business, and it sounds a little too highfalutin, but you know, it's like... That was the underlying thing. The other thing is just, you know, adding value even though you're not getting paid for something. And I used to marvel at, at him, and, and plus the other people he had around him, just continually taking meetings with people where you knew there was nothing there. You just knew nothing was going to happen. But the view he takes is like, look, you pay it forward. You always do, and and you always without expecting anything in return. Just treat people well and help them out even though you realize there's, there's absolutely no business there. For mm-hmm. um, the other thing is I just learned about how to then take the selling skills and go out and find companies that didn't realize they may or may not need to know what their business is worth. Uh, so we would frequently or I would call these companies, a lot of them Omaha and then Lincoln and then some more regional businesses and just tell them who I was. Um, tell them what we did, that we value companies. Uh, Someday you may want to sell your business. You may not. You may want to raise capital. You may not. But it's just good to know that this service is out there. Mm -hmm. And I would do that 10, 20, 30 times a day. Wow. Yeah. And it just became, again, back to the building up the muscle of that Uh, and realizing you're developing relationships with people too. Because, you know, having been through it with my own business and somebody calls you and says, hey, I would like to talk to you about the value of your company. Everybody wants to know what their business is worth. But going through that emotional up and down roller coaster of eventually trying to sell it is a totally different story. Mm-hmm. And so I just I learned that the, the I guess bucking bronco of the the owners and the founders of these businesses when you finally sell the business God, there's some emotional baggage that goes with these things, and respecting that.
0: Yeah, can you give us a sense of like the size of businesses you were working on, or like a type? If you if you can give examples, sure. Like, no, they know? were
1: they yeah. were all over the map. Most of them were service businesses of some kind. Um, but there was one. There was a trucking company that that I sold, and uh, there was a the never forget the owner of that business. It came down to about the. 11th hour and 48th minute and we had basically everything done and the buyer uh said you know the safe in the corner that's really that's really a cool safe of course that goes with the deal and the seller said no that's a safe that's been in my family since you know the 1800s Hmm. and the buyer said well we're buying the assets of the business and that's an asset so we're taking the, the safe. I just wanted you to know that seller just kind of gets all red faced. And, and this is when we're closing signing the docs. Wow. And he goes, well, this deals off because that, I mean, if that's how you're going to treat this business and you think that's something you can just take from me, I'm not going to, I don't trust you. Another huh. guy just goes F you. I don't trust you either. And I just was like holding sand in my hands. <laughs> falling yeah. through. I was like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, you know, r- realizing where some of that emotion comes from and trying to balance it and bring it back together and just, you know, go out in the room in the hallway and just say, Look, I'll buy you a safe.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he goes, No,
1: that's, I want that safe. He, and I, he's going to, I can tell he'll he'll absolutely destroy the culture and he'll fire the people and he'll tear the building down and he'll ruin the trucks and he'll hmm. and go to the buyer and say here's his concern and here's you know so trying to play that and bring him back to eventually realize you know what maybe you should keep the safe yeah. you know
0: were were you able to yeah. able to yeah. do that okay yeah,
1: we were able to do that it was a happy landing
0: <laughs> nice. Um, so, today I view Mike McCarthy as one of the godfathers of private equity in the Midwest. Um, is there one piece of advice that has stuck with you throughout these years that, that Mike's given you?
1: I, I'd say it's more of his actions because he's not a guy that would ever want to just have his memoirs written or anything like that. Okay. He would just completely ignore it. Um, <laughs> but I forget, I never forget, when they had initially started, it was McCarthy Dunn & Company, and the Dunn part of it was a a, uh, Dave Dunn was one of his partners, and they thought they had a really good idea on on asset management. So picture this, you sell your company and you're sitting on a pile of a million dollars and you kind of go, well, now what do I do? Well, we'll manage the money for you. We'll invest it in stocks and we'll invest it in bonds and we'll do all this stuff. That just didn't quite materialize. And so it came time for them to just say, you know, this isn't working. we got to go our separate ways. Now, 99% of people would have said, okay, well, there's 15 brokers here in the office. And uh, sorry, good luck. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike spent countless hours getting every one of those people a job. Wow. It was the most impressive thing. And I remember just watching that and it had such an impact on me that I think it's just a small fiber maybe today what we try and do or what I try and pass on to the folks I hire. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really impactful and it's something that, that has stuck with me f- forever. And I yeah. think a lot of those folks um, that he did that for, you know, look back fondly on that. Instead of it being this lousy breakup, it yeah. became a, yeah, it's a really decent thing.
0: Yeah. So you ended up leaving McCarthy Capital to start giftcertificates.com. Can you walk us through that decision? Sure. Yeah.
1: Sure. Well, one day there was a a super high-energy guy that came in and pitched uh, me on this new company. Uh, His name's Doug Nielsen. And he said, here's what we're going to do. My idea is to buy gift certificates online and resell them. And here's the math how it works. And he walked through the whole model. And I remember thinking, God, this... This actually is really interesting,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: this was 1998, and kind of the heyday of really interesting and bizarre things happening in the internet. And uh, it was not a fit for McCarthy Capital because it, a it was just way too early. It you know it was a plan on paper, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had seen enough pitches from startups and existing companies. And people from all the way back to First National Bank days to recognize something in Doug that there was something there that was worth betting on. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided, you know, I've been doing this for quite a while. It feels to me like this Internet wave is coming. I want to jump into it before it smashes me in the head. Yeah. And it just felt right. It felt right. So we, uh, we joined forces. And and Doug and his sister Julie and I and and we uh, we got this thing off the ground and rolling.
0: And what was the uh, what was the business model? So just like buying gift certificates from like any
1: right any chain or so we would call uh, for instance Macy's okay and say you know your hundred dollar certificate. What we want to do is give access to the average consumer online to that gift certificate. And so they can go on to our website and buy a Macy's gift certificate that today they either have to get from Macy's physically because mm-hmm. they didn't sell them on their website, website yet. Wow. So they had to get them at Macy's, or that was it. It's the only channel. Hmm. And we said, so what we want to do is make that universally available to people all over the world. We'll buy the certificates for $98. We'll sell them for 100. We'll keep the two. And what you guys then get is a new consumer, who has to come to your store and wow. redeem this certificate. And the second part of the model is uh, what they call in in gift certificate world parlance, if you will, is okay. the breakage. And the breakage is, um, I mean, how many gift certificates do you get? A year. Do you get, you know, 5, 10, 15 from people? So my birthday card? Was, yeah,
0: my, my birthday was last week right. and I there, there's an Amigos one. Like, I don't go to Amigos. Yeah.
1: How many of them get in the drawer or in your glove box or mm-hmm. in your wallet or something that six months later you go, Oh, crap, I got this Amigos thing. Yeah. I forgot about it. I don't even know if I used it. Maybe there's a balance on there. I don't know. Most people just forget and they mm-hmm. go uncashed. Yeah. And so that's... You know, that's excellent revenue for the retailer.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And so living off of, um, first of all, somebody buying it and then not cashing it, you can start to see how this pile of cash would build up over time. But you have to have critical mass to get there. You can't just have 10 certificates out there. You have to have thousands. Mm -hmm. And so we had to have hundreds of different merchants and choices of those merchants and we needed capital to buy those certificates.
0: Okay, yes.
1: And so our first foray to go out and raise money was a little bit locally, put a little book together and, and went and told the story to people. And and really couldn't get many folks to to care. Hmm. Probably because we didn't know what we were saying. Yeah. I think we were confusing. The messaging was weird, the internet was new, it was all this. Yeah. I don't get it. Um, so we went to, uh, through a friend of a friend, we got an introduction to a, a, a fund out in Seattle called Madrona Capital. And they're one of, like you say, the godfather. I mean, they're they're one of the godfathers of, of West Coast Venture Capital from Seattle. And we met with them, uh, the managing partner, and he, he got it right away. He said, this, this could be an enormous business. You just hmm. need enough capital. And we were raising a half million dollars. And he said, but you don't need a half million dollars. And we said, we don't. And he goes, no, you need five million. We said, we need five million? He goes, yeah. And here's how you need to spend it. You know, Half is going to go on people hiring the right team and getting them in and paying them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And the other half is going to be on marketing and land grab, just telling the world this story. And on the one hand, he was right. On the other, it was just poor execution and poor timing. Because to us, it just didn't make sense as Midwestern folk to do something like this, to just be really throwing cash, if you will, at something where really our fundamental principle was, let's buy certificates and let's hope 70% go uncashed and let's make margin on the ones we buy. But this other thing of of doing, you know, all sorts of promotion yeah. and PR and aggressive marketing. And it was just something that was a little odd and they wanted us. And this was the, you know, probably 99. It was like, it's land grab. Whoever wins is the ones who spend the most. And we, we fell into that trap. We fell in that trap and we ended up raising not just the 5 million, but then another like 30, 40 million, from a variety of different investors including Bill Ackman um, out of New York who came onto our board. Mm. Um, I don't forget we were walking down uh, Times Square with him one day and this will give you a, a, a picture of what it was like in those times. And He stops, he looks up at, at a billboard and, and he's kind of squinting and then he pulls out his phone and he dials the number he goes, how much do you want for that billboard right next to the gap and right above the espn ad Hmm. you do okay done it just you know it's it's me just send me the bill and we'll pay for it i said would you just do it he said we we just bought gift certificates and ad in times square we're going to be on that thing for a year i said what's that going to cost i mean that seems like prime real estate yeah it's about eight hundred thousand dollars
0: wow and he just did
1: it he just did it and i said no wait a minute (laughs) yeah How do you measure the return on that? How do you know that anybody's seeing it? How do you know that this is going to work? Yeah. He goes, you just don't get it. This is just, these are things you got to do. And and all the while we were like, okay, let's keep going. Let's keep driving. Hmm. And we did grow. We grew dramatically. We um, got it to about $95 million, $100 million in revenue. There were 400 different employees around the country. And we had offices in the World Trade Center. Wow. We had offices in New Jersey, a whole f- high security fulfillment center in New Jersey, Seattle. Uh, I mean, it was a nutty, nutty time. And we filed to go public. And we hired uh, the old Bear Stearns, which you won't remember. But Bear yeah. Stearns was a big, very well-respected um underwriting firm like Goldman Sachs would be today. Which went
0: under in the 08 crash, right? Bear Stearns did? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: So uh, our, our banker, his name was Jim Taylor, I'll never forget. We did the whole, uh, first the analysis and then the initial pricing and then the roadshow to all the potential investors and we packaged the whole thing up and um, we were literally days away from this being a public company and it was a Friday and we had just finished up with uh, final pricing with all the lawyers and the, the documents, and Monday was supposed to be the day. So you've probably seen on TV, they're like, hey, ring the opening bell, ding, yes, ding, ding, yeah, ding, yeah. Yeah. celebration and mm-hmm. all that. And they're gonna do the final cutoff. And, but Friday I called Jim like at noon and said, hey, uh, is there any other loose ends on this we gotta make sure that we, we tackle? But he wasn't there. And so I call his assistant, and I don't get her. And then I call a third person who I was lucky to grab, and, and she just goes, you know, uh, Jim was fired today, and hmm. so was Margaret. And, in fact, the whole investment banking team was let go. I said, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean? I said, well, we're just not doing any IPOs, and the market we see is just going to crash. It's just a bad, bad time, and we wish you luck, and goodbye. Wow. And that's kind of how it went away. (laughs) It was just, okay. So, I mean, Doug and I were just uh, completely dejected. Uh, We had given up a lot of our company in the process of this because through all the different equity rounds of funding, Mm -hmm. you get diluted more and more and more. But when you look at the brass ring, kind of saying, yeah, but we, we only own just a little bit of this thing, but guess what? If it goes public at $450 million value, which is what they had priced it at, Wow. I think we'll be okay. And um, it all just, it just poof, was gone. And, and uh, so we fly back to Omaha and we kind of look at each other and say, you know, really this should be a smaller company. It should be about 90 employees and it should all be based here. And let's kind of put our thoughts together on that. And present it to the board. Just say, here's our conclusion. Mm-hmm. And we did. It was this 10-page manifesto of analysis. And basically got kind of a pat on the head like, this is a blip. This is no big deal. The markets will come back. Just keep operating, doing what you're doing. And we'll put a little bit more money in to keep it going, but don't worry about it. Okay. And we kind of looked at each other and said, don't worry about it. Yeah, This is a train wreck. I mean, we have to shrink this thing. Our overhead is way too high. The burn is completely out of control. And so um, we quit and just said, I guess that was a fun ride. Wow. And uh, Julie left to, to do something. And, and Doug leaves. And he's like, hey, we'll, we'll circle the wagons and find something else to do someday. And this is a tough lesson learned. And oh, well. And and I, I had resigned, but I was still there cleaning out my desk, just kind of getting my stuff and thinking, how am I going to tell people about this? God, yeah. Dang, this is a mess. And the phone rings. And, and today, you know, your cell phone is your communication. But back then we had this system of everybody had a phone on their desk. Right. Yeah. And it was the one line you call in. If you wanted to reach gift certificates, you call this 800 number. And so if it rang and someone out here didn't answer it, it would roll to the next person and roll to the next person. And I'm literally doing this, you know, my arm across the desk into a box, just kind of like, Oh, well God, it was pouring rain. It was an awful day. It was, uh, like late January and 2002, So, we're still licking our wounds from September 11th. Everybody's kind of wondering what's going on in the world. And we got this gift certificates thing. And And,
0: and this recession you're talking about, it was the internet bubble
1: bursting. Yeah, the internet bubble just, yeah. And I had a front row seat, yes. You know, with suds on my face. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I I finally, I'm like, God, is anybody going to answer? Okay, there was no one there. Yeah, so I pick up the phone. It's giftcertificates.com. How can I help you? And this guy goes, Hi. Hey, I'm Dave from uh, Yelm, Washington, and I'm just uh, calling. I want to be an affiliate of your website. And an affiliate basically means if he sends traffic our way and somebody buys something on our website, we pay him a commission. You know, So affiliate marketing is done all, all the time. Yes. And we had quite an affiliate program, but frankly, I just kind of said, oh. Christ, this is the last thing I want to be doing right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I put it on speaker and I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. Tell me about your business. And I'm throwing pens into a box yeah. and he goes, it's called hammocks.com. And what we do is sell hammocks over the internet. And I don't know about you if you've ever had those periods in your life, but it's like lightning hit me between the eyes. It's like, mm-hmm. oh God, God. Would it be great to be laying in a hammock right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean just deep breath, relax, my tie. Okay. <sighs> and I said hammock. Like, what? Let me pull your site up. And I pull it up and it's really bad. And keep in mind early <laughs> 2000s, not a lot of creativity going on with websites. Yeah. Very structured, very methodical. You know, everybody kind of followed each other with the tabs and the Okay. Uh, I pull his site up and I was like, "God, Dave, this is this is really a bad side." <laughs> and he kind of goes, "Yeah, I know, I know. We're we're trying to figure out what to do with it because I want to build a drum studio in the basement. My wife wants to keep making clothes from the llamas on our farm, and I'm just going. This is like bizarre world." Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, well, what do you guys do in sales? Why would you want to be an affiliate of this website? He said, "Well." We do, you know, not very much in revenue, but uh, I'm looking for ways to just justify, you know, staying in business. Mm-hmm. I said, wow, you're going to close? He said, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. La la. Long story short, from the investment banking days, the radar was kind of going. Boop, boop, boop. Yeah, <laughs> I said, well, why don't you sell this thing? And he said, Yeah, I might, I might consider that. I mean, who would buy something like this? I said, I don't know, I might. I had no idea. You know, if, even if you wanted to sell it, much yeah. less where I would get the money to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. He goes, Oh, that 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 would be great. And I said, Well, how much do you have an in inventory? He goes, Oh, I got about fifteen thousand in inventory and I think we'll do, you know, a hundred thousand in revenue. And I said, Wow. A hundred thousand in revenue a month? That's not too bad. No. He goes, No, 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 per year. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. Well, uh, let me think about it. I hang up. I call Doug, and I go, hey, I think I got the next thing where you should work on. It'll be fun. Hear me out. Yeah. It's not going to be a great big deal. It's not going to be anything that we just went through. In fact, this is the anti, what we just did, and it's called hammocks.com. He goes, dude, I'm in. <laughs> just like that. I'll never forget. One phone call. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, I explained the whole model to him, and I said, I think we could have some fun with this thing. You know, we could figure out maybe how to improve it. Maybe get, you know, a couple people to help us run it and grow it. We'll see. So he and I decide to fly out there to uh, uh, visit, you know, do our diligence. Mm -hmm. And uh, he greets us at the airport in this 40-foot white stretch limo. This most bizarre thing. Like maybe he thought this is what you're supposed to do. To entertain somebody looking at okay. buying your business. In a white stretch limo. Okay.
0: It's tough to picture.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. that <was> so weird. <laughs> and so, like, the guy gets out with the little hat, you know, and everything, yeah. and he opens the door. And so we get in, and, and here he's sitting at the, you know, how it has like the weird bench in yeah. the back, and then there's kind of those odd, long benches on the side, and then bench it in the front.
0: And there were three people in this. There three limo. people. Okay.
1: And so, you know, high, uh, un- weird unpleasantries with he, like, the, yeah. like hitting your head on the ceiling. Yeah, kind of leaning thing. over, and, yeah. Okay, so we sit right behind the driver and he sits at the very back of the thing. And we're thinking, is this guy a hitter? Is he like, you know, just playing us? Or what's yeah. going on here? This is weird. We never got a full explanation. We just assumed <laughs> this was something you got to do. We drive all the way out from Seattle out to this this. This farm. There's this long winding road up to the top of a of a hill. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And finally stop. because uh, we, we couldn't talk. You can't hear each other. Yeah. We're shouting, and after a while, we just kind of sat there and looked at each other. We get out, and there's llamas everywhere, and I mean everywhere. <laughs> They come up to the door, and they're spitting, and they're licking, and we're like, uh, do we get out? Oh, yeah, they're harmless, totally harmless. There's hair everywhere. Yeah. Just totally, what are the llamas for? He goes, oh, well, we shave them, and we make clothes out of the you know, The, alpaca, the, the, whatever the fur, is, fur, whatever, yeah, hair. The yeah. hair. And I said, okay, well, that's unusual. And uh, they had this giant field of tomatoes and, and broccolis and... and and cauliflowers and they grew all their own vegetables and real earthy people. Yeah. How do they know how to make a website? No clue. Okay. I think like a lot of people back then, it was just piece it together. Okay. There wasn't Shopify. There wasn't any easy tool at all. And so he had come up with this idea and, and, you know, hats off to him because he and his wife used to drive a motorcycle down into central America and then up through Mexico and stop at villages on the way and buy hammocks. And hammocks, if you if string hammocks in particular, come in a little ball. Mm-hmm. So the, the the traditional rectangular hammocks, the rope hammocks yeah. we're familiar with, are all made in the states. Used to be all made in the states, and that was the traditional, like a hammock from a you know between the trees. Yeah. But the string hammocks are very popular worldwide, and so they would buy hundreds of these things and have this giant thing they'd bring back to the states unwrap it and hang them up and they're colorful and they're beautiful and they'd sell them on street corners at little fairs and craft fairs okay. and, and they put up a little website and that was that's how they started so um, he had some relationships with people to buy hammocks back to my moccasin days like let's make sure we know what we're buying yeah um, he takes us out to a shed that's you know maybe 10 by 10 he rolls up the door and that was his office and there was one little bulb hanging down, a little UPS machine <laughs> and all these colored hammocks all over the place. Wow. And so we bought the business and uh, said, let's this is this is great. This is like a gap year. You know, like yeah. when instead of going right to college or right to grad school or law school, this is our gap year. We're gonna have this fun little business and decompress. And then we're going to find something big to work on, and, mm-hmm. you know, earth shattering and changing kind of thing. So we bring this deal back and we find a little place over 108th and Q Street next to the telemarketers that sold stuff for the sheriff's department. You know, those, okay. those annoying guys. Yeah. We were right next door <laughs> and it was just the two of us initially and... We, uh, we used to, to meet at Barnes and Noble over at Crossroads and go up and down the aisle looking for the back to your question, how do you learn how to do a website? And we found books like how to create a website. Yeah. And, uh, what is a website? Yeah. What's HTML for and, dummies, for yeah, dummies, Yeah. all of those things. And that became our kind of office, if you will, was, was Barnes and Noble huh. all the time. And our inventory was over there at the, the little space. So we, we basically just learned by, you know, faking it. <laughs> and we uh, we just had heard about this stuff called Google AdSense. They're like, let's check that out. That looks really interesting. I, it, it's almost too good to, tr- to be true because what you could do is basically pay to be first ranked in the world for one particular word. And we were like, that just seems weird, but let's try it. Yeah. Alright, so let's have a strategy and we'll set aside $1,000 and then let's redo the website. $1,000 for marketing. Let's redo the website and, and make it fun and eclectic and different and weird. And, and, and we took his site down and then we popped up the new site and we plugged in this marketing and we bought, you know, the hammocks word. And backyard hammocks and backyard swings and all these different mm-hmm. phrases and we just capped it and our sales were up three hundred percent the first day. Wow! And it was just one of those like, is this going to work? And then you start watching it and like, oh my god, somebody in Florida just bought a hammock. <sighs> somebody in Portland, Maine just bought a hammock. What's going on here? Wow! Toronto, what are we gonna do about Toronto? <laughs> yeah, customs. That was just. And these sales started to go up, and so we cut back, stop, stop the advertising, just see if we can even fulfill the orders. Figured out how to do that, and then just kept buying strategic keywords and and learning all of that stuff as we went. And it just it started to, to grow and and uh, really started to work. And then one day, uh, again, the master plan was let's just kind of play with this and have some fun. Yeah. Uh, one day, and we would sit across from each other like this, uh, a guy calls, and I was customer service at, at the time, at, for that day. And uh, he goes, hey, uh, I got my hammock. It's awesome. Thank you. Hung it up. No problem. Do you guys sell port swings? Uh, and I just went like that because Doug was working on something. I said, yeah. I'll up port swings. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so he looks it up, and it was available the domain was available. Huh. I was like, just buy it. Just
0: buy it. <laughs>
1: yeah. And the guy, it was so funny because this poor guy, he goes, so yeah, I want one for my porch, you know, obviously, but I, I don't know what kind to get. What do you recommend? And I said, well, what would you like to sit on? And the guy goes, well, wood. wood. I'd like it to be wood. And I'm looking up porch swing manufacturers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I find one and it kind of goes uh, seven foot, eight foot, nine foot. I said, how long would you like this to be? And the guy goes, oh, I don't know, enough for, you know two or three people to sit on okay two or three people crap what is that that's oh you probably want an 8 foot would you want it out of pine or would you want it out of oak <laughs> yeah and finally he goes hey look are you in this business or not i <laughs> <laughs> just goes i just want an 8 foot porch swing and and i said oh what about hanging gear how are you going to hang yeah send me all the stuff just send it to me you got my credit card yeah just handle it and so we were in the porch swing business and so we did a similar website to hammocks.com, but we did it with portswings.com. Hmm. So now we had two. We had two. We called them stores. And we wanted the experience to be like I pick you up by the lapels and I drop you in a port swing store. And you kind of look around and go, wow, this is everything I ever could possibly want related just to port swings. I don't want you selling me a DVD player and I don't want barware, and I don't want shoes. hmm this is all I want somebody who's an expert and so we would we would write all the the descriptions of the porch swings with these beautiful sayings behind them. like picture yourself it's an August evening and you've got lemonade in your hand and the twinkling of the grass, the glass and the sweat you know down the outside and it's just a beautiful you know you want people to kind of go oh yeah that's exactly right. yeah you know so everybody else who sold stuff like this online would put a picture and it would say porch swing. And then maybe a measurement. Yeah. But we had 8, 10, 12 pictures and different views of it from the front, back, side and upside down. Paragraphs. And describing it. Yeah. stories. Kind of a little bit of Jay Peterman kind of stuff, if you're familiar with that. Just kind of really put the customer in the, the spot of the product.
0: Mm-hmm. No one
1: else was doing that. And then we gathered information on this. You know, so why why did this person in Oklahoma city just order a porch swing? I wonder if any of our other customers are in Oklahoma city. Mm-hmm. And so we would look and go, Oh, here's somebody. And so we would email them. We say, hey, we saw you bought a hammock, you know, not too long ago. And wonder if you'd be interested in a porch swing. This was long before predictive analytics before, yeah. you know, database mining, retargeting, retargeting. Yeah. We didn't know what you're doing. I just figured, Hey, if that was me, I would want somebody to contact me and tell me you also sell this. And then uh, we went up and down the street and basically peeked in people's backyards. I went, oh, bird baths, hmm. oh, wind chimes, oh my God, patio umbrellas, Adirondack chairs. And we looked up all of those and would buy the domains and just do the whole thing all over again and, and start and say, oh, well, you bought a porch swing. Or are you interested in wind chimes? Oh, you're just in wind chimes. Oh, my God. Okay, so we started to build this matrix of how do we predict when people really truly want to be introduced to a new item. Yeah. And that became really kind of the the fundamental of the marketing plan for attracting the customers. We realized that if we would actually overspend on acquiring a customer, we could convert them over and over and over again to these other items for free. Because now they would say, oh my God, those guys sold me a porch swing. But the problem was we were known as hammocks.com. Oh, you're the hammocks.com guys. Yeah, sold me a porch swing, sold me bird bath, sold me this stuff. So we were thinking that doesn't make any sense. Let's create a brand. So let's call Timeout. I think at the time we might've had 16 or 18 stores. Okay. And we came up with the idea of calling it net shops. So shop on the net. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so now we would have this common brand to then sell anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And we went around the, the house first. And then we went into this most common area of the house, the kitchen. And then we went from the kitchen to the dining room, dining room, living room. Just think about how you flow through a house. Yeah. And anything in there we either would buy or lease the domain names and pop up a store and we rebranded about halfway through to hay needle because the name net shops was sort of confusing to our customers mm-hmm. it just some people were like i don't quite get it but it's sort of like a needle in a haystack trying to find stuff for my house hay yeah. hey, needle there you go okay and, uh, and so the, the whole idea behind the business model was acquire a customer once, but get them to come back time and time and time and time again for everything that they need for the house. And early on when we did this timeout where we had the 15 or 18 stores, they said, okay, it looks like we're going to need some key marketing people. We're going to need some branding people. We really need folks that can help us scale these websites. Mm-hmm. We need warehouse inventory management people. We need operations. Stack all that up, and I'm like, well, I think we got to raise a couple million bucks here. <laughs> yeah. We don't have it. Okay, what we learn from the gift certificates? Let's repackage it, tell the story, go around. Certainly people in Omaha want to invest in something like this mm-hmm. because... In a short period of time, we went from fifty thousand in sales to you know almost five million. And painting the picture of saying, you know, if we do fifteen stores, think if we do one hundred and fifty, think if we do five hundred, you know this will be a, a company that does three, four, five hundred million in revenue. So we go around to Omaha, we try and raise some money, and we get the same response, you know, kind of like, "Hey, Warren says not to invest in technology companies, and hmm. this is risky, and people don't like to." buy stuff they can't sit in. So I just don't get it. Sorry. Like, okay. Again, maybe we're telling the story wrong, but we got through friends of friends introductions to a couple of funds in uh, Silicon Valley. Okay. Went out there. Um, never forget. We met with benchmark. They were awesome. Wonderful people right there on the spot said, just not a fit too early. Not sure we want to do something out in the hinterlands, mm-hmm. uh, but do you know the folks over at Sequoia? No, we don't. Well, why don't you call? Here's Doug Leone's number. You should call him. He's he'll either be interested or not. He answers on the first ring, and he's the managing partner of the whole fund. And hey, here's what we're doing. This is where we're from. This is kind of the story. He goes, Yeah, why don't you guys schedule a time? I'd love to to meet you. Send me your stuff. Doug and I scheduled a time. We think we're going out there to just meet him. Yeah. And No, this is the whole partner thing. Okay. And God, they raked us over the coals. I mean, I was sweating. I was just <laughs> yeah, awful. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had this presentation I'll memorize. And, and they say, look, on page 73, you guys say your margins are this. And they're going to this. Explain that to me. And it goes back to kind of the days when I was selling popcorn when a grocer would say, Look, I know your price is a buck ninety nine. I gotta sell it for one seventy nine. My margin needs to be thirty percent. What would you sell it to me for? You can't just sit there and go, Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you gotta know. Yeah. You just gotta be able to, to know. And so having done that countless times and just having the spreadsheet analysis way, way, way back in my early career, just being able to just address that question in your head. I mean, it's the thing. Mike McCarthy was the best at mm-hmm. just mentally being able to to do this stuff so quickly. I I really strive to try and get there. I'll never be there, by the way, but it's one of those where at least you can get to the point where you're in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, we had this this whole pitch, and and Doug and I kind of go out. Oh, God, I think that went bad. <laughs> okay. And uh, this was long before Uber and so forth. So we were waiting for a taxi to come pick us up.
0: Okay, in Silicon Valley, that's funny to think of now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the taxi's
1: like, "Yeah, we'll be there in 18 minutes." You know, which we're like, <laughs> yeah. "Sweet, that's really fast." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Doug Leone, the, the the lead partner at Sequoia, he goes, "Well, you got 10 minutes. I'll show you around our office." Yeah, cool. We walked out, there's this administration, here's somebody's office, and here's somebody else. We walked by a room that's no bigger than this room, which is maybe you know, 10 by 10 or something. Yeah. And there were four guys in there, uh, backs to each other, and screens, I mean, like screens everywhere, it looked like a sports bar, hmm. and and wires everywhere coming out. God, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's a company we just invested in that... We're trying to find space in the valley. It's really tough to find us, you know, because they're going from these four to probably 40 in the next couple of months to probably 250 in in a year. So we need space for that. Yeah. I said, Cool, what do they do? He, he said, It's called YouTube. I said, What? YouTube, what is that? What? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he goes, Man, yeah, it's this business that uh, it posts videos online hmm. for anybody in the world to see and comment on. And I just kind of go, oh, and then what do they do? He goes, well, that's it. Wow. And I said, well, what, what's the revenue model there? He goes, I have no idea. <laughs> but the, the eyeballs to this thing are about a 1,000% a month growth rate. Wow. And he said, so to us, that's something that has value. We just don't know when it's going to be monetized. Yeah. So they sold that to Google a year and a half later for a billion eight. And it was four guys. And it was, it was those four that had started it. But I remember, never forget. I called Doug Leone and just said, God, are you guys just doing running high fives down the hallway over this? And he said, I got to tell you, we put in 40 million bucks. We owned about 45% of the company at the end of the day. Um, and it's a top 10 website in the world and it's only worth a billion eight. I just don't, I think we sold too cheap and hmm. that stuck with me just like that is a big, big perspective to have, Yeah, you know, for them to make 900 million. And, this, I think and he kind of goes, we just probably sold too cheap, you know, wow. is a, is a really healthy educational perspective to take, particularly when it comes to venture capital. Hmm. because the swings you're you're making in the venture world are are not to go from a million dollar investment and hopefully you get a million one back you know it's like one million to maybe get 10 one million to maybe get a hundred yeah and he was living it so that was great but anyway they they uh, I get to the airport after that and on my blackberry which you don't know what blackberries are <laughs> uh, we get a term sheet Wow. And he's like, here's our term sheet, we're interested, here's how much we invest, and you guys ready to go, let us know. I mean, it was that quick. And again, that was another methodology that just stuck with me. Like, wow, big thinker, um, doer, uh, acts fast, and says, let's seize the day and let's go for it. So they became our primary investor. And I remember thinking in, in the back of my mind between gift certificates and, and Haiti, you go, why aren't why is nobody doing this out here? Mm-hmm. I mean, why are, are we that just frozen tundra that no one cares? There's nothing innovative out here. Why is that? Anyway, ignored it, put it in a box, shoved the door, locked it, you know, went back to, to Hayneedle and running Hayneedle and growing that. And along the way, Insight Venture Partners became our other key investor and they're out of New York. Okay. And, uh, Devin Parekh was on our board and he's the managing partner of the whole thing today. And, they brought in Ken Goldman, uh, who was a CFO at Yahoo at the time, to sit on our board. Wow! And so learning from those guys with insight, super analytical, very financial focus, Sequoia connections, um, big picture thinkers. It was a great combination. Great combination of people.
0: Wow! And um, so hey, needle. Um, how how quickly did it scale once that once you had that cash, <coughs> that cash infusion
1: it was uh, really quick yeah and we could not satisfy their appetite for scale either hmm. <coughs> sorry they um, oh, yeah. um you know no matter what plan we would put forth it was like let's add another zero wow let's just keep going oh you need 50 people well let's make sure you get them and if 50 you know if 50 works why don't you get 100 you know, but But here's the difference. We would make the case and say, we don't need that, and here's why. Or we need this, and here's why. And they were awesome at just challenging that mindset and just saying, instead of like the gift certificates experience of like, look, you need all this money and go spend it. Let's make sure we absolutely know what the return on that invested capital is going to mean. And let's not do stupid things. So yeah, the expectations on both sides were really high. It was a it was a good fit. Yeah. yeah. Um, then
0: eventually Hayneedle Needle was um, was acquired by Jet Jet.com. Right. Correct?
1: Right. Um how did um, how did that go? Uh, it was a lot better than the, the Vicks popcorn, I won't tell you that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, again, it was fast. You know, Mark uh, Lori, who is now Walmart.com's um, CEO, hmm. uh, drove that deal. And he said, what we're trying to do is package together a bunch of different brands uh, along with Jet. Our plan is to either sell it or go public. One of those two things. Hayneedle fits. Uh, your customers are the ideal match. Um Everything about it is a good fit, and it came together really quick.
0: Wow. Yeah. And so what was different about it this time than, than the mix? Uh,
1: I just think I knew what I was doing. Yeah. That's all. Okay. I mean, I just had a little bit more seasoning and didn't really sweat the things that I did before and just realized this, this more more than likely needs to happen and is a good fit for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the timing was right. Uh, the messaging was right. The value was right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so as soon as, um, as soon as handle was
0: acquired, did you go right into sending, uh, did you go right into starting Dundee venture? Capital? No. Or? So
1: I had actually started, um, Dundee venture capital before. Hay-Needle was, okay. Yeah, so a management team that we had, had kind of groomed along the way was running it. Okay. Um, it got to be a pretty big business, you know, four, five hundred employees, um, quite a bit of revenue. It was just not a thing I'm good at. Okay, so Hayneedle hey got hey, to be a big enough. A yeah, business. it got to be big okay. business, and so we had a, a senior team that was running it and doing a great job. Okay. Um, you know, I think I think it just was a good time to do that, and yeah. so it allowed me to step away. Um, and just think about what I was going to do next.
0: Yeah, and was it weird stepping away?
1: No, it wasn't because I realized my limitations were not to run a gigantic company. Hmm. I just wasn't capable. I didn't. You know, there were times I walked in and, and people were like, hey, "Hey, can I help you?" It's like, well, you know, I sort of started a company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I didn't know we were growing so fast. Yeah. Of, you know, we had a really good human resources director who could keep. Things hurted. We had a really good CFO. Um, we had the game plan. We had the right board capital structure. I was not adding anything to that day-to-day at all, I don't think. It, and so, you know, you'll come, I mean, at some point in your career, you'll just know when the rhythm is a little off. Yeah. You just kind of sense it, and you're like, is it just me, or am I just not, I'm just not contributing any longer to where you sort of set the direction and if you have the right talented people and they'll take the brand and run Mm -hmm. and they'll do a good job. But, you know, you can also have the checks and balances along the way. Say, okay, hold on. (laughs) When I left, we were doing this and now we're doing this. And what happened? You know, so we're, we were intimately involved in the monthly and quarterly updates. But beyond that, um, we had taken some liquidity by selling some of our shares along the way to inside and Sequoia. Okay. So I was in a position to be able to say, all right, maybe I'm not going to do anything ever again. I'm just going to go and, and play golf and hang around and I'm going to read and I'm just going to do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I don't know, three weeks later and my wife's sort of like, um, Hey, this is not fun <laughs> you're not interesting enough to be around all the time yeah maybe you need to figure out something to do and i kept telling friends and family all about this idea for this venture fund I mm-hmm. said that, god nobody's doing this how come nobody's doing this and it just boy it's a big gap and the more founders i talk to and the more startups and everybody's echoing and and finally people are saying, you know, why don't you just shut up and do it? I mean, it's super annoying. First of all, yeah, Yeah. maybe just either do it or don't do it. Yeah. (laughs) And so we live in Dundee area Mm -hmm. and that was kind of the focus group of one of why I called it Dundee venture capital. Okay. It's kind of like, what should I call this thing? Oh, okay. Well, this is where we are. And so, uh, started with a, what we call a pilot fund. And before I went out to just raise any money and be wrong, I wanted to just test and make sure I was right. And I wanted to test it with my own money only. And so we started with a small fund. It was a couple million dollars just to go out to the market and say, hand in the air, here we are. This is what we do. We invest in early stage technology companies and in founders who have a passion to solve a problem in an enormous market. Yeah. And that was it. What year was this? Uh, this was 2010. Okay. Yeah. And I went and just knocked on doors. So, again, full circle to all the things that I had done over the years. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of, you know, from bankers to lawyers to accountants to every single event you could possibly think of that had to do with startups or anything like that in, in any city. Just to say, here's who we are and here's what we're doing. I got to tell you, you know... of the time, it was like, what? You're in Omaha with a venture fund? I mean, I don't get it. There's nothing cool out there, first of all. Number two, what are you going to invest in? Everything cool is in the Valley. I said, no, no, I don't think so. And here's why. I mean, firsthand account. Number two, I'm meeting a lot of founders who are saying the same story as us. I mean, boy, if I just had a half million dollars or if I just had access to a million bucks... Here's what my business would do. And so we found a half dozen businesses that fit that mold mm-hmm. that we deployed capital into. And it was like, okay, there is demand. There is a need. Let's really go for it. And let's raise a fund and go out and get institutional investors and limited partners to come into the fund. Mm-hmm. And we did that in 2012. Our first fund was $18 million. And we went out to investors, told the story. Here's the whole pedigree of this, you know, shortened down to 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. And here's why we need your capital. And here's the aim is to invest this 18 and hopefully return 50 to 100 million. And we got some investors to believe in that story. And we did that fund. We invested most of it, raised another fund in 2016 which was $31 million, and we're investing from that fund today. And we're probably going to be targeting a raise of another fund coming up.
0: Yeah, so we have um, we've interviewed a lot of the entrepreneurs you've invested with for the show. Um, I interviewed Dusty Davidson last week. Sure. Um, we've talked to Becky App from e- Creamery, yeah. and I used to work for Paul and Stephanie Jarrett at Clue. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. of all of the um, investing stories or or, or um, first first pitch, do you have any like Shark Tank esque stories?
1: Paul and Stephanie, of course. Paul, I mean, my God, the guy's just a, a, a barrel of energy.
0: Yes, yes yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what was it? So I, um, I'm really close to Paul and Stephanie. I was texting yeah. Paul over the weekend. Yeah. What, uh, what was his, what was his presentation like?
1: Well, it was more of us meeting at a, a big Omaha event. Okay. Back in the day, and uh, him just kind of giving me a bear hug and like, dude, <laughs> we could uh, so use your capital. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Stephanie, get over here. You know, this is Mark. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Stephanie just like, you know, calm waters. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then Paul's like, dude, we're going to make billions out of this. Billions. Billions. <laughs> and then, another, you know, picks me up off the ground. You know, but it just it was absolutely something I was not expecting. Yeah. Loved him immediately. Loved the passion. Yeah. And, and just. But you know, getting through some of that smoke, just being able to say, "Here's the here's the kernel, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's how enormous this market is." Okay, let's go. I love that. Love okay. that about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know what? He's uh, he's that way today. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he's yeah. just so refreshing mm-hmm. and high energy guy.
0: Yeah. And then uh, Dusty Davidson, who now um, mm-hmm. who's since started Flywheel, but. Um, he started a company before that, and, yeah. which was one of your first right. investments, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Okay. yeah, Triple C. Yeah, yes. Yeah.
1: And we invested in that. Um, he had a partner out in Boston who was a decent guy, but I invested in it because I like Dusty mm-hmm. and his partners. And you know what you see is what you get. Yeah. Him. Very bright, visionary, no nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much a slam dunk to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, by the way, we, we would we see that repeated, repeating itself all over the place. People like Dusty. People like Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and why is that? They're, they realize now is a great time to start a business. And the best ones, like the Pauls, like Dusty, like the founders of this company in St. Louis called Somersault. Okay they kind of look around and go, why is nobody solving this problem? Well, I'm going to do it. And I am going to do it right, and I'm going to win. And I'm not going just through a wall. I'm going to go around a wall. I'm going to go under a wall. I'm going to make sure it happens. And those are the folks that frequently, everybody has this vision of startup founders as you know hoodies and flip-flops, mm-hmm. and they're you know, 19, 21 years old almost all the founders we have are in their you know early to mid 30s some in their 40s mm-hmm. because they either have been in corporate world and they just kind of go this blows I mean <laughs> yeah. they'll frequently take an idea to senior management at their company and kind of get the same thing like we did like look this is your job mm-hmm. stop doing that stuff and they just go ah you know what forget it and they push away and say I'm going to fix it I'm going to go do it. Those are the absolute best ones.
0: Yeah, so how much do you weigh when you're making an investment between betting on the jockey and betting on the business?
1: Well, that's the team, without a doubt. Okay, the team. And ideally, you have a good technical and a good sales co-founder. Okay. I mean, frequently you see somebody who's a great technical founder, but they can't sell. That's an overgeneralization and not meant to be like, oh, technical people can't sell. But generally, if you have the the two that have been locked at the hip since day one, there's a universal energy that's created from that than just if you have a sales founder or a technical founder. And so that's why we always say there's a team. Uh, Absolutely. The bet is on the team to execute. But uh, we're one of the few that really thinks that the market has to be enormous, because frequently, when there is a great solution, the market's going to pull it through. If the market is sort of not that big or doesn't care, the team can be fantastic. The rest of this doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So Silicon Prairie News recently wrote an article that um,
0: um, in 2010, which is right before you started mm-hmm. Dundee Venture, uh, Nebraska ranked last in uh, venture capital dollars deployed uh, uh, amongst all the estates in america now in 2018 we ranked like 26th or 27th which uh, um you probably get a lot of that credit with that increase how do we continue to increase
1: well i i get a little uh tires tired of all those ranking deals you know um because it's just i don't know if it really means anything yeah you could have one deal that you invest hundred million dollars into and we could be ranked you know ninth does that matter yeah probably not probably not what does matter is that there's more businesses being created and there's more people aware that they can start it here Mm -hmm. and succeed and so i think the 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 real key is we need more of that and that's that starts in grade school Mm -hmm. it doesn't start at a uh, you know, an event where somebody goes, Hey, I'm going to start a business, but it's yeah. the awareness of saying I can solve a problem and I can do it myself and I can utilize technology to do it. Uh, we don't teach that in grade school and in high school and in college. It's just not there. And mm-hmm. until that mindset changes, the rest of this stuff is we're going to continue to struggle because we're a big company town, Omaha. Yeah. It's big business. It's big employers um this is still viewed as kind of wild west mm-hmm. you know i think we give a lot of lip service the importance of startups and technology but you know we travel a lot and and a lot of markets surrounding us and in other under, we call them underserved capital markets are doing way more of, of just educating providing those resources to get people aware that they can create businesses in their hometown you know hmm. then the capital flows yeah it, you know capital is is frequently kind of the last thing people should worry about okay you know cuz if there's great businesses and good founders the money absolutely will kick the door down
0: yeah and and like yourself you can go out of state to right. get yeah. to raise capital yeah right. yeah so you're um This journey you just walked us through has been like long and winding. If you could give yourself one piece of advice at the start, maybe even before you were selling moccasins, what would what would it be?
1: I wish I would have traveled more. Hmm. Yeah. I wish I would have traveled more as a young man to not exotic lands, but just to travel and be under that travel. Uh, stress and experience, because I just think m- the last half of my career, I've traveled a lot more and have been exposed to things and cultures and cities and people and amazing stuff that I wish I would have enjoyed when I was younger. Hmm. And so, you know, if you have a if you have a trip coming up where it's like, oh my God, I got a meeting in Cleveland on Thursday, hey, go Wednesday. And I know it's easy to say for me, but it's kind of like go Wednesday and just, you know, trek around. No. And every city has that one or two key connecting people. And if you can meet them and know them, your life changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. So it's like you call that person and say, look, I'm going to be in Cleveland for this deal. And who should I know? Is there somebody I should know there? Oh. Yeah, there's five people. I'll introduce you. What time are you coming? Folks like that exist in every single city, particularly when it comes to startups and early stage stuff, because it's exciting. Yeah. And, you know, so I wish I would have done more of that.
0: Okay. So I love to travel, so I love the answer. (laughs) Um, I've been to four continents. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. What's your top travel recommendation?
1: Well, we used to go to Belize uh, a handful of times We okay. had invested in a little resort down there. Okay. And we used to go to Ambergris Key, which was um, the island off the coast of Belize. And it's America. It was America, how I would picture it, in, say, the 40s. Okay. Uh, open doors, people hanging out, talking to each other. Hmm. You know, a uh, really small environment. They had three roads on this island, front, middle, and back. That's the names of them. <laughs> and happy, happy people. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a time that I didn't go there and, and leave that place. First of all, just kind of like, uh, yeah. you know, and slow down. You know, I I tell my kids just like, look, get off your phones and lift your eyes and just look around and enjoy because there's so much to see and people to meet and learn and going to that place just kind of made me backpedal. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite places. Yeah.
0: My biggest takeaway from this interview is gr- uh, grow up and um, invest in exotic resorts. That's <laughs> Like a good reason to go exactly, there all the time. Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. Financially, not a great investment okay. whatsoever. <laughs> okay. You know. It's, it's a, but if you measure it on on just pure happiness, I mean, how do you get there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's awesome. Perfect.
0: Man. Well, Mark, thanks for joining me yeah. today. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. And that is it for today's episode. Thanks for being a member of the Commonwealth. If you enjoyed this conversation, please tell your friends about us and leave a review. When we release new episodes, we text the link to a few members of the Commonwealth. To get added to the list, text the word common to 31996. Again, that's C-O-M-M-O-N to 31996, or use the link in our show notes. Thanks for supporting the show.